I'm Jen Taylor Skinner, and this is The Electorate. On this episode, I have a conversation with Christine Centino, a longtime Democratic operative and organizer, and the co-founder and executive director of Advance the Electorate, a new progressive Democratic PAC. Christine is a veteran in this space and has worked on several presidential campaigns, including President Obama's campaigns. And she was also a member of the United Transportation Union for nearly a decade. She brings that experience to this conversation as we discuss the significance of the Biden administration's visible support of unions and how that support will translate to voter turnout among Black, Brown, and Latino voters and unmarried women, the key constituencies that advance the electorate focuses on. So, without further ado, please enjoy this conversation with Christine Centino. Christine Centino, welcome. Thanks so much for having me, and thanks so much for being you, for doing this work, highlighting (laughs) women. It's great that you're doing this. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you for joining me. It's going to be a pleasure because (laughs) the first question I have for you, we talked about this offline, was this really interesting fact about you that I just learned. It's kind of relevant to the news cycle, but I just want to know about it because I think it's really cool. So you were the first woman conductor, or one of the first women conductors for the Union Pacific Railroad. I believe I was one of the first out of Los Angeles. You'd have to check the stats in terms of nationally, but I certainly can tell you from like mid eighties, late eighties, it seemed like there were no other women out there. (laughs) My questions about this could take up a whole episode. That's not what we're here to talk about, but I just like, how do you do that? Like, how do you become a conductor? But we won't talk about that, but it sounds cool. Was it as cool as it sounds? I don't know if it was cool. For me, it was a job. And, you know, it was a job with like these crazy hours and you were on call and stuff like that. And for folks who may not know, a conductor is basically the boss on the train. So it's freight trains. It's not like collecting tickets on the Amtrak. So you are like hauling these big, long trains that people get caught in when they're going out somewhere. And it takes like 20 minutes. I was the boss on the train. So basically would tell the engineer where to go, how fast to go. Are we adhering to all the rules? Do we have toxic waste on our train? And what are the things around that, right? Making sure that the folks on the train got paid, mostly older men who didn't want some 20-year-old telling them what to do. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) For me, like I didn't think of it in terms of like, oh, I was breaking barriers or anything like that. It was a really hard job. When I first started out, I was like, I don't know if I want a boy job, (laughs) but I had kids to feed and they needed health insurance and all of that other stuff. And it was really good pay and it was equal pay because I was part of a union. So I never had to negotiate those kinds of things. So the first 10 years, and I was 19 years old when I started out on the railroad. So for the first almost 10 years of my life, those were things I didn't have to worry about. And it sort of made my life easier In other aspects, it was a hard job and a job that, like I said, imagine having two kids and trying to negotiate babysitters when someone is calling you at three in the morning to go get on the next train to Vegas. It fulfilled its purpose and it certainly gave me a foundation for the work that I do now. So I'm all about the workers' rights. I'm all about equity for women and those things that I didn't really even think about before. They were the foundation for me and it was because the union created that before I even knew what it was all about. Right. The union is a big, big piece of that. And you were a member of the United Transportation Union for nearly a decade. So as a longtime member of that union, how meaningful was it to see a sitting president join the picket line as Biden just did with the striking auto workers? Yeah, I think it's incredibly meaningful because I think that clearly Joe Biden gets it when it comes to working class and middle class. So that's all important. Could it have been done a long time ago? Yes. 
there's always going to be some criticism there, but I'm very glad that he did it. I think it says a lot, not only for the workers on the picket lines, but this strike, it impacts everyone. If the top three employers in the United States who are the big three auto workers are having to negotiate and knowing that the president is paying this close attention to it, what is that going to say for Amazon workers and Starbucks workers and all of those things, right? And these jobs, for me, you know, I'm looking at these jobs because I'm feeling like these are jobs where there are more women, there are more people of color in these jobs. They now have to be competitive and they now have to offer better benefits, better pay, all of that. So I think Biden going out there and supporting the workers, it says something about the workers. It also says something about the foundation that's been led this summer. So let's not leave out the Teamsters who won the strike for the UPS workers. Let's not leave out the Writers Guild and the SAG-AFTRA folks, right? Exactly. And they're all setting the precedent. So I think the president going out there is not only honoring them and honoring the workers, but also saying to these big corporations like, hey, no more. Stop this. Especially at a time when these CEOs, they have record-breaking salaries, record-breaking profit margins for their shareholders. And they've said, and I was out there on the picket lines in 2019 when UAW went on strike. We actually went out and walked with some of the workers there in Detroit. I think what he's saying now is enough is enough. One, pay these workers, but I'd also like to see these big companies pay their taxes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right, right, right. I guess as we say colloquially, the CEOs are breaking it in, right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Why is it so hard to share that wealth? When we look at the salaries of the CEOs, it used to be, I think, 20 years ago or something, for every dollar that the average worker made, the CEO is making $200. Now that's come up to $450. That's on average. <laughs> right, right. And so it just seems like the president was saying a lot more than just, I support the workers. He was very strong and forceful in his words. I think someone asked him, do you support the pay increase you're asking for? And he said, yes. But I'm curious about what it means materially. Does it get these union workers closer to the deal that they want? Like, what does it mean practically? Well, you know, we're seeing inflation is affecting everyone. And there's been a lot of blame on the pandemic and those kinds of things. I think there's been also a lot of just folks taking advantage, corporate greed. Like it's out there, they're able to get away with it. That's a reality. And that's something that they need to be called on. But I think for a lot of these workers, I feel like you're not creating a job if your workers are still in poverty, if they're still having to go to the government to get health insurance or a single mom still has to get food stamps, even though she's working every day and she can't afford a car and she's taking the bus to work and on and on and on, which I've done. I used to ride my bike 12 miles. Back <laughs> and, forth. and so that's not a job. That's employment. And it's not even, what do they call it? Like underrepresented employment or something like that. But to have a job for the sake of having a job isn't enough. We're talking necessities, right? We're not talking you're going to get like a coach purse every month. Right? <laughs> right, right. People aren't taking lavish vacations, right? Yeah. Right, right. And if they're making these profits, it's immoral to me. It's just immoral. Right. That these guys are making all of this profit and they're not willing to pay their workers fairly with good benefits. If they get hurt, if they want to go back to school, if their job's eliminated, which is what some of these UAW workers are facing, right? As we make the switch over to EV, to electric vehicles, some of these folks can lose their jobs, so they have to be retrained. And it's the union that's fighting for that, right? It's the union that's saying, give them money so they can go back to school because these big CEOs, 
they're not offering that money. No. I think that's part of the responsibility that the workers have earned. We talk about this as like the CEOs are giving them a wage. These workers earned it. And I think we need to change that kind of rhetoric. It's purposeful. What do you mean is purposeful? I think these companies pay comms firms a lot of money. Oh, right, right, right. <laughs> to have this kind of framework, right? Where we're saying the workers, they're demanding this money. Right. They've earned it and they've earned it for a long time and they've been put off for a long time to say, well, we can't really afford it right now. And we got hit hard by the pandemic and, oh, we're switching over to electric vehicles and we don't know what to do. Well, somebody certainly profited from it. Why can't the workers get that money? Right. It's interesting that you said that about the comms departments because, you know, Republicans have picked up those lines. I don't know if they're reading it verbatim, but Republicans were framing it as a bad thing that workers were demanding more pay and that word demand, right? They aren't demanding. They've earned it, like you said. And it's really interesting that they've picked up that line. But my question is, and this may seem naive, this is a kind of a naive question. Why has it taken so long for a president to take this very public pro-union stance, right? Is it because they're afraid to lose the support of these corporate CEOs? Like why? Why has it taken so long? I can't speak for all presidents, right? <laughs> I wish I could, but I can't. But what I will say is I think for a long time, a lot of the Democratic presidents, at least, have taken the unions for granted. I think this comes from a space of like not really having that union experience, right? So it used to be that we had a big, huge union membership, and maybe you weren't a union member and you were able to go straight to college from high school. But for a lot of folks, and I think this may have been the case for Joe Biden, like they were surrounded by union members. They saw them going to their jobs and being able to like buy a home and go to the Jersey Shore once a year or something like that, right? So they had that experience and they were able to see the impact that having these union jobs meant for people. So I think that's certainly the case for Biden. But then along comes Trump and a lot of these union members start voting for him. Right. And so there's sort of this disconnect between there was this really man's man who told it all and, you know, told it like it is, right? And I have folks in my family who think that way and they vote against their best interests. And I think what's starting to happen from what I can see is like, they're starting to realize like, we can't take those union votes for granted. We have to really educate folks and tell them this is the work we've done for union families. And then they have to do it. Like <laughs> they have to do it first. And then they have to come back to them and say, this is what we've done. This is the impact we've made. Let's do this together. So I think there might be some of that conversation going on somewhere saying like, hey, Democratic Party is the party of unions and we need to re-engage them. Right. And I know from the union folks that I've worked with, the political directors and in, in my experience, a lot of them have sort of said, the Democratic Party doesn't always get it when it comes to unions. Mm -hmm. So we need to rebuild that. We need to go back to what we had before. And I'm hoping that they're starting to see that. It seems clear to me that that's starting to happen again, whether it's SEIU or the Teamsters or AFSCME is doing a big bus tour to talk about like the impact of government workers and the AFSCME workers. And so like just sort of having these conversations again of what it means to engage members and support them and to be out there with them on the picket lines. Yeah. You know, that thing about Trump really, really bothers me because that fraud case just came up with Tish James and these union workers voting for him. He is the exact type of person who's working against their interests. Like, if you just think, you don't have to think very deeply about it. Like, he's got a Manhattan penthouse that's like covered in gold. 
does like a gold-plated door handles. <laughs> He's the person who doesn't pay his own workers. He is not a working class person. He does not support working class people. He's used every trick in the book his entire life to hoard money for himself and his family and to stiff working class people. Like that's been his MO for his entire life since he was in diapers, probably. <laughs> He's been doing that. There's no question there. I just want to state that it just really bothers me that there's this disconnect, but I'm glad that Democrats are finally being more public about their pro-union stance and they're really getting it. But we could probably break down that demographic of union voters by probably race, I'm assuming. I don't know if you have those numbers. I don't have those numbers. But for the longest time, the working class has been synonymous with the white working class, right? But you and I both know that that's not necessarily true, especially when it comes to unions. So I'm just curious about, you know, what the demographics are of those union constituencies. How is that message going to come across to those specific voters? Just in terms of like how they're messaging folks, I think whether they like it or not, the population of the United States is changing. So I see unions, the iron workers are doing a really good job at like really making this transition over to reaching out to Latino workers because so many of the construction trades and the building trades, the Latinos start out, many of them immigrants having to come and stand out in front of Home Depot to get whatever work they can. And they're really working to like transition them into good union jobs. And so what does that look like? And I think part of it looks like you have to have organizers who look like you, who you trust, who have been through your experience. The same holds true for elected officials, by the way. Mm -hmm. yep. <laughs> but, you know, you want people that look like you have been through your experience and you trust them. So those organizers who were having the conversation about try to get in the union and here are good union jobs, all of that is really important. Also, the apprenticeship programs that are going on, the, the unions work with community organizations on the ground. Marty Walsh was doing this when he was mayor of Boston and then became head of the Department of Labor, but really good apprenticeship programs where they're going to the communities, to the community groups that are already established in these cities. And they're saying, help us reach out to the community members, whether they're Black, Latino, women, all of that, right? And help us talk them into like, here's apprenticeship programs that are offered and here's the benefits that it could be to your family. They're also paying these workers as they're going through the apprenticeship programs, which is super important. And then what they do is some of them go on and they become part of the union and others of them stay and they organize. They stay in their community. So I think all of that work is important. And then the unions are there. The Democratic Party has been there for big legislation like the PRO Act and big things that unions are trying to get established and get passed, anti-right to work, all of that, right? So. There needs to be a lot more work to be done, but we're starting to get there. So I know that you worked on several presidential campaigns, including President Obama's campaign. And I'm just curious about the state of progressive policies back then in comparison to now. Because when I think about Obama's campaign, he got a lot of things passed that would be considered, you know, especially thinking back in 2008, pretty progressive, right? I remember for years, you know, Democrats, at least Hillary Clinton was talking about universal health care. That just seemed like it would just never happen. And we got pretty close with the Affordable Care Act. I think of that as being a pretty progressive piece of legislation. There was Wall Street reform. There was Consumer Protection Act, the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell. And I think that when we look back at Obama's two terms through a progressive lens, I don't think that he necessarily gets credit for being that progressive necessarily, right? 
And I see the same thing happening with Biden, right? The Inflation Reduction Act and the investment in, you know, climate change. All of those things, I think, are pretty progressive. I absolutely think you're right. I also think that we need to be accountable as progressives, as people of color, to be able to say, like, I love Barack Obama. I will be the first to say, right? I think everything that he was working towards, clearly his values align with mine. But I will say, he's no wizard. He's not a dictator. Right. And he doesn't get to wave a magic wand and we all sort of say, oh, great, everything's going to get passed now. We have to be prepared and we have to be politically mature enough to say as progressive voters, as any voter, actually, to say, like, this work doesn't get done in four years or eight years. We also have to be continuing to fight and support and vote not only for Barack Obama, but for your local mayor, for your water commissioner, for clearly your school board member, right? And those are things that we haven't done in the past. I will say for the Biden administration, he doesn't get credit for like a couple of weeks ago, he had an amazing week in terms of he was out there with the workers on the picket line. But, you know, they also started a new gun violence prevention czar. The work that he's trying to do, he had to push back on the student loans and it didn't work out the way we wanted it to work out. But they sort of immediately sort of shifted and said, like, what's another way we can do this? They're offering other options in terms of forgiving the interest rates and, you know, those kinds of things. So things don't always get done immediately, but we're working towards something. And we have to be, as voters, be mature enough to say, like, okay, we got to stay in the fight. And when you think about how long someone like John Lewis has fought, someone like Ted Kennedy fought for health care, someone like Eliseo Medina, who has been fighting on the picket lines from the UFW all the way through his career, and he won't see immigration pass. He's retired now. How do we get common sense immigration reform? It's clearly not going to happen in 30 years because we've been fighting for that, right? But we have to continue. That's what we have to do. And we also have to expect that there's going to be pushback. Clearly, there was pushback. When Barack Obama was the first Black president, the pushback was we were stuck with Donald Trump. When slavery ended, the pushback was we had decades of Jim Crow. So we have to expect that there's going to be this pushback, like history is telling us that, and we absolutely do not have to accept it. (laughs) Right, right. right. We absolutely have to keep fighting harder against it, but these are things that we should sort of be prepared for. Like, this doesn't come easily. So it's a long haul kind of fight. Right. I think about that a lot, the pushback following the Obama administration, Obama, President Obama's terms. I just don't know how long (laughs) we're going to have to. I mean, I hope it doesn't last for decades and decades, but it certainly feels like it because even though President Biden is in office now, there's still a bunch of voters who were voting out of anger, like not voting in their own interest. They were voting out of anger because of President Obama. Right. And, you know, that is part of the payback as you mentioned. But Biden did something that was really smart, I think, when he became the nominee in 2020. You know, he won the primary and he adopted and embraced a lot of the policies that his people who were running in the primary had as their, you know, because student loan forgiveness was not a major part of his platform, but it's something that he adopted later. And I think that that is probably what's driving this progressive direction for the whole party, presumably. And it's actually pretty smart. So that's more of a comment than a question. But I also think, too, what I really appreciate about Joe Biden, and believe me when I say I don't agree with every single issue that he's got out there, but what I appreciate about him and what I think is so important on all levels is representation matters. 
He's got four folks who are Latinos on his cabinet right now. They're doing great work, but I was just at the Congressional Hispanic Caucus conference last week, and they had a panel with Secretary Cardona, with Secretary Becerra, with Guzman, who's the head of the Small Business Administration, and Mallorca. It was great to see that representation. And like I say, I'm not going to agree with every single policy that they've come out with, but it empowers me and it empowers the work that I do to know that if we continue to look for good candidates, to run for office, to be part of the political system, they're going to have a voice at some point. And I think Biden has done a really good job at surrounding himself with people who are diverse, who are inclusive, to give their lived experience. They have great educations. They have great careers. But this lived experience, Secretary Becerra was talking about the dichos that his grandmother taught him and his shared values. It's very powerful to hear that and to hear that like, oh, I had a grandmother like that who talked to me about those things, who said that I can do this too. I got to work hard. I got to go to school. But I can not only have a good position and be in a position of what other people may consider a very important position, right? But I could also like be a voice for a lot of people who they're not there yet. So I get to be in a space where I can speak for Latinas. I can speak for union members. I can speak for single moms, on and on and on, right? I think that is something that certainly we're trying to do at Advance the Electorate with my PAC and certainly that we want to continue to build that bench from school board members before I die, hopefully all the way up to president, right? Yeah. Speaking of Latina and Latino voters, one question that I always have or one topic they always have with every election cycle is, you know, how to improve turnout amongst that constituency, right? And I don't really know what the answer is, right? And I never quite get a clear answer because one of the things that happens is that campaigns approach them as a monolith, which I know is a mistake, right? But I'm also curious as to, you know, why the numbers generally aren't higher. They do turn out for Democrats more than Republicans, but the numbers seem to be stuck around 60% or like 65%, I think is right, right? But, you know, I'm thinking about these Republican debates that have been happening for the past couple of weeks. And, you know, all they can talk about is, you know, how can we be more cruel at the border? They're not having any conversations that are advantageous to any person of color anywhere. They're debating the benefits of slavery. I really don't know what the messaging could be to increase the turnout for any groups of people of color. But specifically, since we're talking about the Latino constituency, what needs to happen here? What's the messaging? I think we've seen it happen already, right? So I think definitely what needs to happen is we need to inspire folks of color, Latinos, Black folk, LGBTQ, all of the underrepresented groups. We need to inspire them to vote. They don't vote because they don't trust the system. Either they're thinking that my vote doesn't count and it doesn't matter, or they're thinking this is all a bunch of bull, like I'm just done with it, right? And my concern is always when I see debates like we saw last night, when I see that it's like a little clown circus or something, and I feel like they're little clowns coming out of the car, just like the Three Stooges or something. And it's ridiculous to me. And all I can think is people are shutting this off and they just are saying, I'm done. I'm never going to vote again. Yeah. Republicans have to be accountable for that. But what I know my experience has told me when Barack Obama ran for president and I said, hey, I'm going to do whatever I can to get on that campaign because this guy's the real deal. He was able to inspire folks. And we saw the lines of folks, Black families going as generations of voters were going out, right? So it was 
the 18 year old kid who was voting for the first time was there with his mom and dad and his grandma and grandpa and his great grandma and grandpa, right? I know that it can work. Maxwell Frost in Florida, this great young guy, he just energized so many people. Delia Ramirez in Chicago. We're seeing these folks get into Congress. There's a judge in Chicago, Timothy Wright. If you don't know him, get to know him. <laughs> the guy's amazing. And so I know that if we inspire people of color, they will turn out to vote. And so I think that is the solution. And then we have to continue to have these conversations within our family members, not on CNN, not on MSNBC, not in Fox News, none of those, right? Within our family, within our circle of friends to say like, we have to do this. We have to get out there and vote. We have to run for office, not just president, like I said, school board, city council, all of those kinds of offices, right? And for women in particular, the statistic is that they have to be asked seven times to run. If they want to run for office, they need to be convinced. So we need to do that convincing. And we see these powerful women all the time in their in churches, in their at public housing groups, their PTA groups, those kinds of things. And they're running stuff. They are running the show. Those women, we need to have pipelines to get them to run for office. And they need to be convinced of those. We also, once they do run for office, need to do everything we can to support them. These folks don't know Harvard. They didn't go to school with Harvard alumni, and they can't tap into that. They don't know every single elected official. They may not be a part of a union. So where are they getting their support? Where are they getting their funding? It comes from volunteer bases. It comes from those little $3 donors. So we have to be supportive of those folks who are willing to take that plunge. But the stories that they have, and I can give you story after story of these wonderful candidates that I've worked with, and some of them don't win on the first try. So we have to be able to support them when they're willing to come back. There's a couple of folks, you know, Mondeer Jones out in New York, like he ran a great campaign. There was all this chaos and redistricting in New York. And he lost the first time. Now he's hopefully running again and he'll win. We have to support folks like that. We have to look for those kinds of people. And that's what we do at Advance the Electorate. We recruit them, we train them, and then we hopefully help them to win office. And when they don't win, if they don't win, then we come back to them again and say, like, are you ready to do this again? Can we help you again? And we will get there. You know, it's so important to have those operatives who look like the community that you're trying to turn out, you know, because we were talking about Obama. And the reason he had those lines around the corner and generations coming out is because of who he was. He was Barack Obama, right? And so they came out for him and his message was inspiring, but they also just kind of came out for him. Well, President Clayton doesn't look <laughs> like he looks like all the other presidents we've had for decades and centuries, right? He looks like all the other presidents. And so it's really important to have operatives and other people at other levels in the government who are representative of the community. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? We don't have that representation in the White House. What we do with Vice President Harris. But this is the criticism I have of Obama. And I say this with all the love in my heart because I love Barack Obama. We love you, Obama. If you're listening to this, we still love you. Okay. <laughs> but the criticism I have is like everybody expects that like the next guy has to be Barack Obama. He is a once in a lifetime, once in a generation, very, very unique person. It's like he worked hard to get where he was and he made it look really easy. But now that bar has become incredibly high. So anybody else who comes in after him 
if you're a black man from the south side of Chicago, you have to be at that level. But I know that advanced state electorate focuses on these demographics, turning out these candidates and endorsing them and, you know, having operatives, you know, people of color, Latino, black, under the age of 41 and unmarried women. And you call this the new American majority. And I'm curious, why unmarried women? Like, what's the importance of that constituency specifically? Well, we've seen it, right? We see it in Alabama when Greg Jones won. It was Black women, mostly unmarried, who mm-hmm. voted for him and who got him into office. But also, like, when people ask me why I got involved and why I started with Advance the Electorate, with 8PAC and the work that we do, right? I get asked this question a lot. I've been asked this question a lot in my career. And it's always like, talk about diversity and inclusion and what that means in your life and all of that stuff. And it's for me, that's not a concept. That is my life. Right. right. Yeah. I have been in the situation where I needed quality health care. I took a job just so I could have quality health care for my family. Right. I've been in a situation of trying to get through school at 30 and dealing with student loans and all of that. Right. We're talking about our lives here. And I think for single women, there's so much that impacts our life. And I'll just say on a very personal level, I have a son, my son, when he was about 24, him and his roommate got in an argument and they were arguing over text. And my son sort of said to him, hey, well, we're arguing. You've got my TV. I'm coming to pick my TV up. And when my son went to pick his TV up, the kid came out shooting and he shot my son in the arm. He shot him in the back. And so clearly mental health issues affecting our lives, gun violence, access to guns affecting our lives. The fact that my son was 24 years old, this was a year after Obamacare passed, so thankfully he was on my insurance, but health insurance now affects our life. Then there was the prescription drugs that's affecting our lives, right? So this one horrible incident affecting our lives, it just wasn't one thing. Thankfully, I had a job where I could take some time off and I can take care of my son. Thankfully, he was able to recover and all of that stuff. Then came the police and all the police reform stuff that my son didn't want to be any a part of, didn't want to talk to the police, didn't want to go through the courts, Mm -hmm. none of that, right? All of this stuff from one incident that most people look at as one tragic, terrible incident really affected all aspects of our lives, not just my son's, our life as a family. And I think this is the case for single moms. One small thing happens, in my situation, it wasn't a small thing, but one thing happens and it affects five, 10 different aspects of their life. For some people, they may lose a job because their kid gets a flu and they stay home for three days and then they go back to work for a day and the kid's still sick. And so now they got to go pick them up, right? Right. Child care, all of that. Exactly. Stuff. I think that's why the unmarried women, they don't have a support system. They're more relying on government services to sort of get them through their everyday lives. Well, thank you for sharing that. I'm glad your son is okay. Thank you. And you are absolutely right. This is people's lives. It's not just some policy. We are actually living this. I'm not an unmarried mom, but I do have a son. I have a black son. And, you know, I think about policies in the context of my life. You know, I think about police reform all the time. You know, he's still little. He's 12. Right. But <laughs> to me, right. I mean, we just right. think about The talk things. is coming, right? If you haven't had the talk yet, it's coming. It's coming. So it's really important to have people who have those lived experiences out there because you can have people. And I think it's important to have representation, racial representation, having Black and Latino people, Asian American people who are representatives, but they also have to have 
and expansive life experience as well, right? To make sure that we reach all corners of our constituencies. Yeah, and it's not just representation. I think when we think of representation, we think of folks in Congress. Absolutely, it's that. But we also have that representation of the voter who's just saying, this is my pick for today, and that's my opinion. So that representation is important too. That's something that we can all, for the most part, if we're citizens, we can all go vote. We have to be accountable for that to say, I want my opinion to be heard. My opinion is I'm going to choose the guy who's supportive of gun safety, or I'm going to choose the woman who I know is going to fight for adequate funding for public schools. That representation is just as important as the person who's in Congress. Yeah, exactly. So as we close out, I'm curious as to what your thoughts are on 2024. You know, what are our blind spots as a party? What are you worried about? And what are you hopeful about? Blind spots? Well, (laughs) (laughs) so many. Just pick one. (laughs) I mean, there's the not so blind spot of the fact that Donald Trump is going to be running for president. He's going to probably win the Republican primary, maybe while he's in the court being indicted. That's a reality. And so, you know, I talk about being inspired, and I think it's going to be difficult to be inspired through this process of all that hateful rhetoric. Immigrants are going to get attacked. Young folks are going to get attacked. People are going to be called juvenile names, whatever. But that's going to be what we're faced with. So we, I think, have to really fight back and push back and say, no, I'm not accepting that. There are people that I'm inspired by. Maybe Joe Biden is not Barack Obama, (laughs) but his values more align with mine, and I'm going to get out there and support him. And I'm going to take my son and my grandmother and my best friend down the street and on and on and on, right? So I think we're going to have to work hard to make that happen to give our opinion and to say like, yeah, it matters. So I think that's the hard part. But more and more in the work that I do as we endorse candidates and train candidates, there are some incredible people out there and they're not going to get the spotlight. They're lucky if they get some little blurb in their local newspaper, right? But we need to search them out because we need a judicial system that works. We need more representation on school boards. We need to fight back against climate change. And so we need folks on water boards and stuff like that. Local is really where it's at. We need to pay attention to that. There's going to be some great candidates. You'll hear great candidates that 8PAC is coming out with and great candidates that a lot of folks who are doing this progressive work are doing. I also think, and I will say, like, we need early funding. Whatever group is out there, whoever you're excited about, they need that support early so that they can get out to these communities and really get their message out there. They need volunteers. They need money. They need the word of mouth, social media, all of that. And that's something that everyone can do. Yeah. I would love for you to come back as we get into the thick of 2024 and talk about some of your candidates as we get a bit closer. Oh, I'd love to do that. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for all the work you're doing. And yeah, just thank you for taking time to talk to me. All right, great. Thank you for having me. And if folks are interested, they can follow 8PAC at 8Action on social media, or they could go to our website at 8Action.org. Excellent. Thank you. All right. Thank you. 